It's March 1645. Three large English merchant ships sail into the Bay of St. Augustine on the southwest coast of Madagascar. Captain John Smart stands on the bow of the Hester, flanked by the Sun and the James. All three belong to his employers, the Courtine Association. As the rain finally stops, the scorching midday sun causes steam to rise up from the wet decks of the Hester. The vessels slowly enter the mouth of the Onilahi River. Captain Smart, his brow glistening in the stifling heat, casts his eyes about him in wonder. He marvels at the lush woodlands in the distance and clear waters lapping at the mangroves lining the shore. Perhaps the stories were true. Madagascar, it seems, is indeed the chiefest paradise this day upon Earth. They have arrived after six long months, battling storms, rounding the Cape of Good Hope, and sailing into the Indian Ocean. Under his command are 140 men, women, and children. More, in fact, as three baby boys were born during the voyage. These would be the lucky souls to build a new England in this tropical Eden. In his hand, Captain Smart clutches a bunch of tattered pages, geographical pamphlets. He'd read them so many times he had the author's words memorized. The richest and most fruitful island in the world. The land floweth with milk and honey inhabited by the happiest people on Earth. In particular, he was anxious to experience the healthfulness of the land, given that so many of the colonists were so weak from the long voyage. Spying a natural clearing in the trees, Smart is rowed ashore. As they approach, figures emerge from the forest. They are greeted by smiling faces, a Malagasy welcome party. These Europeans aren't the first Antoatra, or sea people, to visit their lands. As Smart and his colonists exchange gifts and greetings, they can hardly suspect how much they would come to hate this island. Their heaven on earth would turn out to be a living hell. For many Europeans, Madagascar would prove to be a cursed colony, offering only disappointment, death, and destruction. And yet, one day, a thriving colony would emerge here. One man would eventually succeed where empires had failed. A lowly sailor called Adam Baldridge founder of the Pirate Kingdom on Madagascar. I'm Tom Morton, and welcome to Real Pirates. 
the show that dives deep into the true story behind the world's most notorious buccaneers. Join us as we set sail under the black flag, alongside such legendary figures as Blackbeard, Henry Morgan, Charles Vane, Anne Bonny, and Mary Reed. We'll reveal how these marauding mariners rose to dominate the seven seas, the terror tactics they employed to overpower their prey, and what life was really like aboard their ships. Their reputations have swollen to legendary proportions, making it hard to separate fact from fiction. Who were they? Terrorists or freedom fighters? Cold-blooded killers or heroic underdogs? As it turns out, the truth is far stranger than fiction. got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the deal. It go down. It go down in the deal. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. By 1721, Blackbeard is dead. So too as Steed Bonnet, Charles Vane, Calico Jack Rackham, Mary Reed, and Samuel Bellamy. Countless others await trial and the hangman. The lucky ones have fled inland, begged for mercy or quietly retired. Is the golden age of piracy at an end? Far from it. Through the 1720s, pirate ships spread out, sailing away from their former homes in the Carolinas and the Caribbean. Some sail north to Nova Scotia, others go south to Brazil. But for many, the compass needle points east. They head across the Atlantic, towards Africa and to Asia beyond. What tempts them to journey to the far side of the world? Perhaps they are inspired by the tales of those great pirates that came before them. The marauders who once terrorized the East Indies trade routes and the Muslim shipping of the Red Seas. Legends like Thomas Tew, Henry Avery, and William Kidd. They seek the promise of boundless wealth that might still lie beyond the Cape of Good Hope and a return to the original pirate kingdom of Madagascar. Dr. James Rankin is a historian and an authority on pirates. Increasingly, as the 17-teens and 1720s went on, those places that had once been pirate havens had now become fully committed 
to promoting British commercial interests. And that meant that they could no longer fence goods or offer some sort of protection to pirates. So I think as conditions really deteriorate, particularly in the Caribbean, but also, you know, all along the Atlantic littoral, they are forced to begin to get more creative. And one of the most obvious responses is to go further afield. And if you go all the way around the Cape of Good Hope into the Indian Ocean, there is a already ready-made base there, Madagascar. To understand where the future lies for the pirates of the Golden Age, we must go back in time to the end of the last century and explore the legends of the Red Sea Men. In 1699, Lord Bellamont, governor of New York, lamented, The vast riches of the Red Sea and Madagascar are such a lure for seamen that there is almost no withholding them from that vile practice of turning pirates. Many in this era would claim to be honest mariners, law-abiding sailors working in their nation's interest. But like beauty, piracy is in the eye of the beholder, and a growing number of witnesses watched in horror as the events of the late 17th century unfolded. Call them what you will, but from 1695 to 1700, many hundreds of sea rovers, marauders, privateers, or pirates prowled the Indian Ocean. Using a small base on the northeast coast of the island of Madagascar as their safe haven and home port, a small spit of land called Sainte Marie. Eric J. Dolan is author of Black Flags, Blue Waters, the epic history of America's most notorious pirates. The pirate round had pirates leaving as privateers, typically, from the American colonies, going around Cape Horn, stopping off in Madagascar or a small island off the northeast corner of Madagascar called St. Marie's. That was a place where there was a small pirate outpost and on the way to attacking ships in the Indian Ocean and coming out of the Red Sea, they could stop at Madagascar and replenish their supplies, relax, go off attack, and on the way back home to the colonies, they would stop off at Madagascar again for similar purposes. But it really evolved after about 1691, 1692. There was a guy named Adam Baldridge who later became king he anointed himself King Adam Baldridge, who may have been a former buccaneer or pirate that ended up in Madagascar. Not much is known about Adam Baldridge prior to his arrival on Madagascar, but his mark on history is unmistakable. Many believe he fled Jamaica and the Caribbean around 1685. The story goes that he's a criminal on the run, a man wanted for murder. Although many suspect his history of violence goes back much further. One of the things about Adam Baldridge that's interesting to me is that he was almost certainly a pirate in the sense that he was, at the very least, one of these men who had been part of the sort of violent maritime predation that really characterized mid to late 17th century Caribbean life. Baldridge is one of these kind of veterans of what at that time was basically a pretty much constant state of maritime warfare. I think it's important to remember that these were hard, 
hard men. The world that they lived in, right? The 17th century Caribbean was just an extraordinarily violent place. And the people who survived and thrived there tended to be extremely hard men. But obviously, Baldridge's move to Madagascar was in many ways, I think, a pirate looking for some sort of post-pirate life. He went there, obviously, with the intention to settle down on land. Baldridge himself writes, July the 17th, 1690, I, Adam Baldridge, arrived at the island of St. Marie's in the ship Fortune, Richard Conyers' commander. And on the 7th of January, 1690, 1691, I left the ship, being minded to settle. He is accompanied by two other men and a young apprentice named John Smith. The rest of the crew continues south down Madagascar's east coast, where they are shipwrecked and most drown. The pirate settler's new home sits in hotly contested waters. A clash of empires and cultures rages all around them. The Portuguese were the first to enter the fray, establishing a network of forts along the African and Indian coasts through the 16th century. The Dutch followed, establishing the Dutch East Indies around modern-day Indonesia. The French claimed the islands of Mauritius and Reunion. Finally came the English, in the form of the militant East India Company. The Indian Ocean it is a zone that is contested by the major European powers, but is not one that is under the control of any single empire. And certainly, at this time, European powers are not in a position to dictate the terms to many of the major local powers, right? And in particular, the Mughal Empire in India is an extremely powerful state. And so the European powers are all extremely keen to maintain good relations with and to keep the Mughal Emperor on side. That's a key dynamic that will come into play. In particular, in England, the British East India Company, or at this time, the English East India Company, is heavily invested in trade in extremely rare and valuable commodities that you can only obtain from regions in and around the Indian Ocean. Aside from the obvious strategic value of its location, Madagascar itself must have appeared like the perfect refuge. First sighted by Europeans in the 1500s, it had long been referred to as a real-life Garden of Eden. The world's fourth largest island is fringed with mangrove wetlands, blessed with fertile highlands and swathed in lush rainforests. But the greedy eyes and grasping hands of European empires had long sought and failed to conquer it, giving rise to its reputation as a cursed colony. For centuries, every major colonizing effort met with disaster. During the 1600s in England, the idea became an obsession, an impossible utopian dream. Pamphlets and poems boasted of its beauty, healthfulness, and of its friendly, peace-loving people. The 1640 Madagascar portrait painting of Thomas Howard, Earl of Arundel, his hand triumphantly resting on a globe, stands testament to this mission and its folly. 
It's the autumn of 1645. The Cortine Association Colony in the Bay of St. Augustine. Just a few months after their arrival, Captain John Smart sits at his English oak desk, carried thousands of miles across the ocean to the tropical shores of Madagascar. He feels weak. His body is racked with hunger. The disillusioned governor of the would-be plantation writes a letter lamenting the unforgiving land they have chosen, altogether unfitting for our residents as not affording anything for or of subsistence, the earth being barren salt and not producing anything of seed, plants or roots that have been sown. The fields lie empty. Their cattle died within a few weeks of coming ashore and their remaining provisions now rot in humid storehouses. As for the island's famous healthfulness, by October, the monsoon rains bring little relief. Sickness soon invades their camp, bringing tedious and violent burning agues and fluxes, most likely malaria. By December, nearly a third of the 140 colonists are dead. But all is not lost. Their salvation lies with their neighbors, the indigenous Malagasy. Trading for cattle and provisions is now a matter of survival. Unfortunately, cultural misunderstandings prove fatal. After accusations of theft and insults fly back and forth, Captain Smart, becoming desperate, plays the oldest trick in the colonial handbook. In an elaborate disguise, he invites the local chief, Dian Brindar, and his sons to a celebration of friendship. They ply their guests with liquor until they're blind drunk. Then, they kidnap them. Holding the noble family to ransom for 200 head of cattle seems like a great success. But it's the beginning of the end for the English interlopers. A few months later, Captain Smart sits sweating and miserable in his sweltering stone house as he listens to the latest reports. Two more colonists have been ambushed and murdered. A boat has been cut adrift and another destroyed. Even the blacksmith's forge has been burned down. Days later, another settler strays too far into the forest while gathering watermelons. He's later found with his throat slashed. The utopian dream of Madagascar has become a living nightmare. In May 1646, after 14 horrific months, the few remaining colonists burn down their houses and hoist the king's colors over the smoldering debris. Before they depart, they bury a letter to any who might follow demanding revenge on the locals who'd ruined them. Only a handful would make it back to England. The rest disappear, deserted or dead, scattered across the Indian Ocean. Portuguese and Dutch efforts to colonize Madagascar had both suffered similar fates, being shunned by local tribes, resulting in bloody conflict 
What these imperial expeditions all failed to realize was that alliances with the indigenous Malagasy people was the key to survival. It's a mistake the pirates would later avoid. I think Baldridge managed to succeed in creating a presence on St. Marie where many of these obviously much larger state-sponsored attempts to do so failed. Partially because Baldridge was willing, or at the very least obliged, to accept that he had to forge an intimate, close partnership with the people who were living in that area. He could not arrive as an imperial conqueror, so he did actually have to develop like real connections to that community there. And we do know that one of the unique things about the pirate settlement on Madagascar is that there was a lot of interaction between the pirates and the local Malagasy population. Throughout 1691, Baldridge is joined by other passing crews who also see the sense in settling on St. Marie. Most, like those who came before, soon die from disease. But Baldridge is a survivor. He quickly realizes that his fortunes lie in befriending the local population. The Malagasy he meets on St. Marie are no strangers to white men or their firearms. A local tribe strikes an agreement with Baldridge and his surviving band of pirates. They will share their land and produce with them if they join the fight against a rival village. Baldridge is handsomely rewarded in local goods, provisions, cattle, and the real prize, captured prisoners of war, enslaved Malagasy men and women. Baldridge knows when he's onto a good thing. He marries the daughter of a local chief and throws his lot in with his new allies. He goes on further skirmishes to help his new friends redeem their own relatives, being held captive by neighboring communities. The ensuing battles buy Baldridge their thanks, and presumably leads to more enslaved prisoners for himself by way of payment. Slavery at this time, and at any time, truly horrific business, a horrible thing, a blot on our collective history. But when you explore it, the fundamental thing that is required are the enslaved people themselves. In Western Africa, many were delivered up by Africans, prisoners taken during battles between different tribes and through other avenues. And in Madagascar, it was often no different. The way that Adam Baldridge got a lot of his human chattel, as it was called back at the time, and enslaved people, is that he allied himself with various tribes or communities in Madagascar who were at war with one another. And in many cases, the spoils of war were captured Malagasy people. And many of those prisoners were then in turn fed into the slave trade. In the 17th century, Madagascar was divided by numerous warring factions, with a near constant back and forth of battles and border disputes. Shipwright sailor Robert Dury writes, 
the epidemical evil of this island is their frequent quarrels with one another and the very cause so many of them are sold to the Europeans for slaves. Baldridge was neither the first nor the last pirate, slaver, entrepreneur to arrive on Madagascar and exploit local rivalries. In the 1724 A General History of the Pirates, Charles Johnson reports that many rival princes were continually making war upon one another. Their prisoners are their slaves, and they either sell them or put them to death as they please. When our pirates first settled amongst them, their alliance was much courted by these princes, so they sometimes joined one, sometimes another, but wheresoever they sided, they were sure to be victorious. Baldridge, above all others, seems to have excelled in this regard, perhaps because of his choice of home, the offshore islet of St. Marie, rather than on the mainland. He is someone who forges very advantageous alliances with the local Malagasy population and exploits ongoing wars between rival groups in order to really build up on the island of St. Marie. This is also key, right? The island of St. Marie is a small island off the coast of Madagascar, which kind of gave Baldridge a situation where he could establish a toehold, but where he was not exposed to potentially the danger of reprisals from the people that he was leading these raids against and enslaving. With a growing number of enslaved people under his control and a thankful local population, Baldridge digs in, carving out a personal kingdom on St. Marie. But how did these small successes propel Madagascar into a notorious pirate haven? Turns out, they were well financed. In every place, in every era, piracy is an economic phenomena. And in the Atlantic world at this time, the primary economic concern is the trade in enslaved people. At the heart of this horrific practice is a brutal and simple calculus. In New York or Boston, a healthy enslaved man might fetch as much as 30 pounds, almost 4,000 pounds today, a woman 15 pounds, and a child 10 pounds. The overheads of an American or Caribbean slaving voyage must factor in a minimum of 10% mortality rate from West Africa, plus the costs, customs, and limitations of doing business with the Royal Africa Company. The 18-month return journey from the New World to Madagascar might mean as high as 20 to 30% loss of human life on the voyage. But Baldred's cheap source of enslaved people makes the maths work. The reason that Malagasy enslaved persons were deemed as being so valuable is purely economics. They were about one-seventh or one-eighth of the price of an enslaved person taken from Western Africa. So merchants who were looking to have higher profit margins, of course, wanted to get raw materials, in this case, the enslaved persons, for a cheaper price. In September of 1691, Adam Baldridge sends a letter to the leading merchant in New York, Frederick Phillips, with a simple proposition. Baldridge wrote him a letter and basically said, I've got a lot of inexpensive or relatively inexpensive enslaved persons that I could sell to you. Frederick Phillips was very involved in the slave trade and New York was the hub of the slave trade at the time. So he was excited. 
And in exchange, he would send goods from America to Adam Baldridge, who would act as his broker. Little did they know, but the Baldridge-Phillips trade agreement would lay the foundation for an explosion of piracy the likes of which the world has never seen. All bankrolled by Atlantic merchants. By the early 1690s, Baldridge's small outpost has already been visited by a number of weary pirates, who having taken an East Indiaman or a Mughal trade ship, found themselves at a loss, with nowhere to sell their goods and no means to resupply their vessels. And they sort of sweetened the pot by expanding the nature of their trade, because Baldridge said, hey, I've got all these pirates who, after they've attacked Mughal ships, are coming to Madagascar to relax for R&R <laughs> and to, to refuel, and they've got all these goods. I can sell you some of these East Indian goods as well as enslaved people. And you in turn can not only send me money and goods, but you can also send me other items and I can establish a marketplace here on St. Marie's and I could sell these things that the pirates need to them. And so you can make even more money. Phillips dispatches the Charles in 1693. The inventory reads like any other intercolonial consignment. Hats, shirts, stockings, needles, metal tools, Bibles. But it also includes several chests of guns, blades, munitions, rum, wine, and beer. This is a pirate supply ship, make no mistake. Phillips follows the Charles with the Catherine and the Margaret, and it's not long before other merchants are getting in on the action. The trade between American merchants, particularly in New York, which seemed to lead the pack, and the pirates in Madagascar was quite extensive. It was well known. It was not something that was hidden. It's not long before pirates flock to Baldridge's far-flung trade post for all their needs and wants. But how did the colonial merchants get away with it? After all, these vessels still need to clear customs agents in the Atlantic and in their home ports. They're exploiting a legal loophole, and it's a limited-time deal. Technically, there's not actually a law against some of these things. It's very much in a legal gray area, which is why many of these New York merchants are supplying Baldridge when he gets established, because it's not technically illegal to supply him, even though he is an interloper. The Royal West Africa Company in England who oversaw the slave trade in Western Africa didn't have any stake in the Madagascar slave trade. The English East India Company technically could have oversight over the slave trade coming from Madagascar, but during the early 1690s, they didn't show much interest in it. So that left an opening for Adam Baldridge. So it's a pretty tidy affair. Early on in the sort of early 1690s, Baldridge's partnership with these sort of New York merchants is a very mutually beneficial, very lucrative arrangement. But we can never forget that there are human beings being enslaved and traded in order to make this work. 
By 1695, Adam Baldrige's small fiefdom on St. Marie is a bustling center of commerce. His large house is protected by seven or eight guns. A makeshift fort with 20 or so guns sits overlooking the harbor with its storehouses and makeshift docks. All of which, presumably, has been built with slave labor. On the shore and in the huts and houses around the bay, an exotic mix of slavers, traders, and smugglers mingle together, striking deals and trades. In the shallow waters beyond lie the telltale carcasses of stolen ships from across the globe. Mughal merchants, East African dhows, Persian galleys, and European sloops. Pirates have swarmed here in their hundreds to rest, relax, and cash in their ill-gotten goods. But it's not just guns, ammunition, and booze that's being traded. Legal documents, wills, and contracts, even love letters are sent back and forth between pirates and their friends and families half a world away. Some sailors even hitch a ride home. Another way to make money is a lot of pirates got off their ships in Madagascar. They were getting homesick. Well, for perhaps 100 pounds ahead, one of the merchant ships that had brought goods to St. Marie would in turn bring the pirates back home. So it was like a marketplace for pirates, for goods, for American merchants. And it worked quite well for a number of years throughout the 1690s. It's a huge commercial venture. It is like a carefully planned out, very well executed commercial venture. So I think people perhaps aren't aware of just how much collusion there was and how sophisticated it was. But perhaps the most remarkable aspect is the relative harmony that existed between Europeans and Malagasy. Many sailors even settled down, taking a wife or multiple wives and starting families. In fact, in the years to come, generations of Euro-Malagasy communities would emerge. Although, where there are violent criminals and booze, peace is never guaranteed. Internal tensions did occasionally break the uneasy peace, particularly over division of treasure. One entire pirate crew reportedly held a death match in a quarrel over their shares of plunder, already at 1,200 pounds a man. Two sides, seven men on each, brawled on the beach in a fight to the death. In the end, the two bloodied survivors left standing graciously agreed to split the hall. Elsewhere, on other occasion, pirates apparently attacked each other on behalf of their merchant backers in covert trade wars. But generally, it seems Baldridge succeeded in forging a peaceful collaboration of sorts between Malagasy, pirates, and traders. This period of prosperity on St. Marie in the 1690s would provide the vital support needed for some of history's greatest pirate adventurers to emerge. It would cause huge damage to Britain's commercial interests in the East, while being bankrolled by her colonies in the West. But it couldn't last forever. Though Baldridge, the survivor, was not to be caught out. On October 1697, 
whilst Baldridge is away on a trade mission, an uprising of the local Malagasy threw off the yoke of their pirate prince. They stormed the fort, killing dozens of pirates and traders. When he finds out, Baldridge calls time on his adventure and sails back to America. He later gives a deposition incriminating numerous Red Sea pirates and explaining how the sailors had abused the locals and caused the massacre in his absence. Though one witness to the event had a different take. This young sailor claimed it was Baldridge himself who was to blame for the bloodshed. He apparently went a little bit beyond that business model and he started taking enslaved persons to fill his quota just from Malagasy's that he was ostensibly allied with. He didn't just wait for prisoners to be generated through war. And that got uh, his erstwhile friends rather upset with him. And while he was out on a voyage to the southern part of Madagascar, the, the people who he had wronged attacked the pirate enclave and killed many of the pirates. And he got word of that. And instead of going back to perhaps be killed himself, he uh, hightailed it back to the colonies and melted into colonial life. The young sailor who testified to Baldridge's greed presumably was quite impressed with what he saw on St. Marie. He would return and make a name for himself as perhaps the most notorious pirate of the Red Seas. He will return as Captain William Kidd. Baldridge's departure doesn't spell the end of the pirate haven by any means. The word is out. The business model is a success, and many would pick up where he'd left off. Madagascar will become the base through which pirates are able to access the Indian Ocean much more easily to get supplies and all of that. And I think that he was conscious of, and other operators at that time were conscious of, the possibilities that it presented, right? Particularly when they began to forge a commercial partnership with well-financed, well-connected backers from some of the American colonies. The scene is set for piracy to explode throughout the Indian Ocean. The base at St. Marie would be visited by the greatest legends of the Red Seas and light the way for generations to come. Next week on Real Pirates. Rumors of the pirate haven on St. Marie spread like wildfire through America and the Caribbean. So too do stories of the incredible wealth that lies in the Indian Ocean, ripe for plundering. And with France and England at war and their colonies facing bankruptcy, the temptation will prove too strong to avoid. We see how a Rhode Island privateer, Thomas Tew, takes matters into his own hands. And in doing so, emerges as perhaps the greatest pirate of his age. Find out next week on Real Pirates.
Real Pirates is a Spotify original from Parcast. Produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Warrow for Parcast. Written and produced by McAllister Beckson. Sound supervisor Tom Pink. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Sound design by Matthias Torres Sole. Mix master by Cody Reynolds Shaw. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley.